Uh, second thing, I feel uh, compelled to give a Surgeon General's warning <laughs> that if you're in here and you're woke, that this message, you may find it hazardous to your worldview. <laughs> So the topic I've been assigned for this uh, Shepherds Conference breakout session is the spiritual deception of wokeness. The spiritual deception of wokeness. And I've added a subtitle to it. I didn't really add the subtitle. John gave me the subtitle. The spiritual deception of wokeness, a post-mortem on the effects of wokeness in the church. A post-mortem of the effects of of wokeness in the church. Now, the term postmortem is a Latin phrase meaning after death. Post meaning after, mortem meaning death. And during a postmortem, a pathologist will examine the outside of the body and then open the body to examine the organs. The pathologist may also take tissue samples and, in some instances, remove organs from the body for a more detailed examination in order to establish a cause of death. Now, though I feel safe in assuming that every person in this room probably knew that already, I thought it both important and necessary to begin my message with that definition as I endeavor to put some context around what it is I want to share with you in the brief time that we have together this afternoon. Though Christ's church is not dead, nor can it die, since its founder and head is immortal, and eternal, that's 1 Timothy 1.17, there is in that sense no need to conduct a post-mortem on the church. Nevertheless, there is a sense in which it has become necessary, in my opinion, to conduct an examination of the spiritual health and vitality of the evangelical church in light of the extent to which the putrid ideological disease that is wokeness has infected and contaminated it. But before we look at some of the specific ways in which wokeness has, in fact, infected the church, it's important, as we did earlier with the term postmortem, to provide some context around the idea of wokeness by first endeavoring to define it. So what does the term wokeness actually mean? What does it entail? Now, I'll endeavor to answer those questions in just a moment, but I want to put before you at the outset of my message that a predecessor question we need to consider today is, why should it matter to the church what wokeness means? Why should it even matter? I mean, after all, isn't wokeness something that's a problem out there somewhere? In other words, and sincerest apologies to Tina Turner, what's the church got to do with it? People have often said to me that wokeness is creeping into the church as if it's infiltrating the church stealthily or clandestinely. No, my dear brothers, that's not what's happening. Wokeness isn't merely creeping into the church. It's being welcomed in right through the front door. Wokeness is an ideological Trojan horse without the horse. You don't need a horse when you consider, as Pastor MacArthur says in his book, 
Christ called to reform the church that, quote, churches today are so invested in attracting sinners that they attempt to bury their theology under the welcome mat. That unbiblical model of outreach is the very thing dulling many churches' ability to reach the world with the gospel. Filling the pews with comfortable, unaffected unbelievers is the fastest way to confuse and corrupt the work of the church. God has not called his people out of the world to chase its trends in vain attempts to seem relevant. The church cannot be salt and light in this wretched world if we are indistinguishable from worldly people, unquote. Now, when it comes to defining wokeness, it's important that we not treat that word as merely an innocuous form of sociocultural slang. I say that in light of the following comment from comedian and self-described multi-hyphenate and social justice advocate, Amanda Seals, who in an episode of her podcast called Small Doses with Amanda Seals said this, quote, wokeness for what it's worth, is a buzzword that a lot of people are not truly understanding the depth of. And I totally agree with her on that. Wokeness is a buzzword that a lot of people are not truly understanding the depth of. I think sometimes things work their way into the zeitgeist and they lose their weight. And wokeness is one of those words that has reached that point, unquote. So with those words from Amanda Seals' background, Let's consider the question, what exactly is wokeness to begin with? Now, it may surprise you to learn that there really is no single, objective, settled-upon definition of that term. For example, in a tweet dated December 10th, 2022, Joanne Reed, host of the MSNBC program The Readout, said this, quote, Being woke progressive means being awake to the suffering and oppression of others and open and enthusiastic about modernity and change. It means being better than you were. For us, that is woke progressives, change is joyful and liberating. I'd much rather be us than miserable them, unquote. Reed's rather antagonistic construct of wokeness stands in stark contrast to this more objective definition provided by Dr. Owen Strand, who describes wokeness as, quote, first and foremost, a mindset and a posture born of critical race theory and related systems of thought. The term itself means that one is, quote, awake, unquote, to the true nature of our society where so many fail to see it. In the most specific sense, This means one sees the comprehensive inequity of our social order and the corresponding need for racial and social justice, unquote. A third take on defining wokeness is from media producer Robbie Starbuck, who is even more direct than either Reed or Strayan, positing wokeness as, quote, a multifaceted pseudo-religion complete with strictly enforced virtues internet inquisitions, sins, penance, public rituals, evangelization, iconoclasm, sacred texts, seminaries, and more. It is a modern leftist cult, unquote. 
Now, the truth is there are elements of each of those three perspectives from which we could develop an objective construct of what wokeness is. And though the term wokeness is regarded by many within evangelicalism as a benign colloquialism, it is in reality a one-word dialectical repository for such worldly philosophies as social justice, anti-racism, critical race theory, intersectionality, cultural Marxism, liberation theology, womanist theology, reproductive justice, scientific justice, ethnic studies, gender theory, queer theory, drag theory, transhumanism, posthumanism, DEI, SEL, ESG, and the latest addition to that ever-expanding panoply of cultural suppositions, climate change, or what in contemporary woke vernacular is commonly referred to as environmental justice or environmental racism. You can suborn every last one of those ideologies under that one word. Speaking of environmental racism, the noted theologian and biblical apologist Jane Fonda Jane Fonda offered the following commentary. This is just to give you an example of how all-encompassing wokeness is. Jane Fonda offered the following commentary recently on an episode of The Kelly Clarkson Show, saying this, quote, Well, you know, you can take anything, sexism, racism, misogyny, homophobia, whatever, the war, and if you really get into it and study it and learn about it and the history of it and everything's connected, There'd be no climate change if it wasn't for racism, unquote. That comment by Jane Fonda is one of the most inane examples you'll ever come across of how wokeness is essentially an ontological abyss, a philosophical black hole that sucks every social, political, cultural, and yes, theological and ecclesiastical issue into it that the ideologies I noted earlier can all be suborned under the broader canopy of wokeness is a commentary on the fact that wokeness is essentially another form of postmodernism. The Stanford University Encyclopedia of Philosophy defines postmodernism as a set of critical, strategic, and rhetorical practices employing concepts, listen, employing concepts that are specifically designed to destabilize other concepts. You must understand that when you're dealing with woke ideologies. They're specifically designed. Mike Riccardi alluded to this earlier in his uh, message from earlier this morning. They're designed to destabilize other concepts. This is why in wokeness, two plus two can equal five. This is why in wokeness, you can no longer define definitively and objectively what a man and a woman is. Destabilization is the goal. The key word in that definition of postmodernism, by the way, is the word critical, which means to criticize, which is subjective. It does not mean to analyze, which is objective. It means to criticize. In wokeness, literally everything, literally, is criticized and must be criticized if it is to be destabilized and deconstructed 
which, as I said earlier, is ultimately the goal of wokeness. Wokeness is a scorched earth worldview from which absolutely nothing is safe. Nothing. Nothing is safe. One non-ecclesiastical example of this is from an article titled, Humanity is Doomed If We Let Woke Zealots Destroy Scientific Truth, published March 4th, 2023, on the website of the British media outlet, The Telegraph, in which journalist Zoe Strimple makes the following observation, quote, American universities devote pages and pages to the apparent new job of science to be anti-racist. In 2021, notoriously, Ivy League students at Cornell University were offered a course titled, quote, Black Holes, Race, and the Cosmos. Now I'm going to let that one settle for a second. Black Holes, Race, and the Cosmos, which gave students the chance to mold the following. Conventional wisdom would have it that the black and black holes has nothing to do with race. Surely there can be no connection between the cosmos and the idea of racial blackness, can there? Contemporary black studies theorists, artists, and fiction writers, however, implicitly and explicitly posit just such a connection. So the postmodern mockery of truth that underpins wokeness is now extending well beyond the humanities into areas that until about five minutes ago have been spared. But a world in which, listen to Strumple here, but a world in which it is not only possible, but actively encouraged to strip science of its epistemological integrity, the quest for what is true and what is possible, and to treat it as though it were merely yet another discussion of people's feelings or a political platform for condemning racism and transphobia is a world that is not destined to last very long, unquote. She's absolutely right. She's absolutely right. Wokeness fits perfectly within that definition of postmodernism that I cited earlier, because among the myriad concepts that wokeness is fundamentally designed to destabilize or deconstruct is the concept of absolute truth. This makes wokeness a self-enslaving worldview when you stop and think about it. For by not accepting anything as being objectively right or wrong, wokeness subjugates its followers to the philosophical bondage of a capricious and ever-shifting paradigm of not only what is or isn't right, but what is or isn't righteous. That's why it is so punitive right now to deface a rainbow pride flag that's painted on the street. Do you know you could go to jail for that? Because that's not righteous. So in wokeness, the paradigm has shifted. It's not just about what is or isn't right, but what is or isn't righteous. You have to understand that distinction. That is why in many ways, wokeness is not merely an ideological or philosophical proposition. 
It's a holy religious framework as well, complete with its own theology, its own homardiology, and its own soteriology. And listen, when your professed worldview contains those three things, its own homardiology, theology, and soteriology, when your worldview contains those three elements, you not only have followers, you have disciples. And when you have disciples, you have evangelists. And make no mistake, brothers, wokeness is discipleship evangelism. It is making disciples. But as it specifically relates to the spiritual deceptiveness of wokeness and how that belief system is infecting the evangelical church in terms of both orthodoxy and orthopraxy, I want to suggest to you today that at its most fundamental level, wokeness is a man-centered approach to widening the narrow road to God. That's what wokeness is fundamentally. It's a man-centered approach to widening the narrow road to God. I say that in light of what Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Now, as wokeness with all its deceptive principles, precepts, and tenets continues to be embraced and affirmed within the evangelical church, often with the willing cooperation and facilitation of its leaders, I want to suggest to you that the effects of such ideological accommodation can best be observed primarily, though not exclusively, but primarily in the following two ways. One, theological relativism, and two, ethnic tribalism. Theological relativism and ethnic tribalism. First, theological relativism. A prime example of how wokeness leads to theological relativism is Dr. Randy Woodley. Dr. Woodley is Distinguished Professor of Faith and Culture and Director of Intercultural and Indigenous Studies at Portland Seminary at George Fox University in Newburgh, Oregon. When asked recently by a white female student how she could better understand the concept of decolonizing evangelistic missions, Dr. Woodley responded as follows. Now, before I quote Dr. Woodley, I want you to understand that what you're about to hear, I am quoting verbatim, verbatim. So Dr. Woodley was asked by a student, how can I better understand the concept of decolonizing evangelical missions? Dr. Woodley responded, quote, Our job is first to observe where Jesus is active. Whether it's your next door neighbor or someone across the waters, it doesn't matter. Where is Jesus active? And once you find out where Jesus is active, then convert to that and that culture. Because our job as humble servants of Christ is to first convert to their truth, not to expect them to convert to ours, and to understand that God expects two conversions out of every process. And when I'm saying conversion, it's little c. Like, I look at salvation to me, a word that better captures salvation is healing. And healing is a process. We begin our healing, we complete our healing, but we are also being healed. So as Paul says, 
now are we much closer now to our own salvation or healing than when we first began. And then part of that is decolonizing our own thinking and as much as possible through the help of cultural guides, indigenizing ourselves to that culture and then at the proper time when given permission to share our truth. And that's sort of how I understand mission and evangelism, unquote. Absolute theological relativism. That rather capitulative and acquiescent response from Dr. Woodley is replete with the language of theological relativism. But you see, that's precisely where the deception of wokeness leads. It leads you to a place where, as Dr. Stephen Lawson has often said, where your feet are firmly planted in midair. This is exactly where Dr. Woodley is. He's a man whose feet are firmly planted in midair. That's because wokeness fundamentally is a worldview in which, as Pastor MacArthur says in his book, The Truth War, quote, objectivity is an illusion. Nothing is certain, and the thoughtful person will never speak with too much conviction about anything. That's Randy Woodley. See, in wokeness, objectivity is an illusion. Dr. MacArthur is correct. Dr. MacArthur continues, strong convictions about any point of truth are judged supremely arrogant and hopelessly naive. Everyone is entitled to his own truth, unquote. That's why I titled this first part of my outline, Theological Relativism. Because you get a guy like Woodley, who says that when we evangelize others, our goal, first of all, is to convert to that lie. To convert to that falsehood. And then when they give us permission to share our truth. Now, the way I sort of exegete that, there's only one truth. Now, either their truth is true or my truth is true. They can't both be true. You're telling me that I need to, I need to first evangelize them, and as I do so, I need to convert to their truth. Now, if their truth is true, why evangelize them? You see, in wokeness, objectivity is merely an illusion. It's a mirage. It's a phantasm. And that wokeness views objectivity as illusory is precisely why people like Dr. Randy Woodley are so evasive and noncommittal when it comes to defending the biblical gospel. And when I say biblical gospel, I'm speaking of the gospel, which in Colossians 2.8 calls us to no longer be taken captive by philosophy and empty deception. You want a good two-word definition of wokeness? It's empty deception. It's empty deception. Perhaps Dr. Woodley's relativistic visage of evangelism can be better understood when considered against the backdrop of Portland Seminary's woke statement of faith, which reads as follows. We believe that God has called us to be and to make disciples of Jesus Christ and to be God's agents of love and reconciliation in the world. In keeping with the teachings of Jesus, we work to oppose violence and war, and we seek peace and justice in human relationships and social structures. Now, that statement may seem harmless enough on the surface, but it is abounding with woke euphemisms. 
Phrases like social structures, peace and justice, and agents of love and reconciliation are all merely woke verbalisms commonly employed by professing evangelicals who sanctimoniously consider themselves to be theologically and ecclesiastically progressive and who attend churches that have Black Lives Matter banners and pride rainbow flags conspicuously displayed as woke virtue signals pointing hell-bound sinners to a postmodern Golgotha. But Dr. Woodley isn't alone in his capitulation to the culture. Consider also what Andy Stanley, senior pastor at North Point Community Church in Atlanta, said recently concerning what, in his view, is the value that practicing LGBTQ men and women bring to the evangelical church. Again, I am quoting verbatim. Andy Stanley said, quote, If I can figure out how to get straight people as excited about serving and engaging as the gay men and women I know, we would have a volunteer backlog. That's my experience in our churches. A gay person who still wants to attend church after the way the church has treated the gay community, I'm telling you, they have more faith than I do. Well, I'm sure they do, Andy. They have more faith than a lot of you. I know 1 Corinthians 6, and I know Leviticus, and I know Romans 1, and it's so interesting to talk about all that stuff. But a gay man or woman who wants to worship their heavenly father, who did not answer the cry of their heart when they were 12 and 13 and 14 and 15, God said no, and they still love God. We have some things to learn from a group of men and women who love Jesus that much and who want to worship with us. And I know the verses, I know the passages, but we got to figure this out, unquote. You see, what both Dr. Woodley and Andy Stanley are demonstrating respectively is that in wokeness, the church is merely a social construct. That's all it is. And what do I mean by social construct? Well, consider that question in light of a 2003 white paper titled, Through a Mirror Dimly, Social Constructionism Through the Lens of Faith, written by Dr. Amy Quillen. Dr. Quillen is student ombuds and director of academic engagements and partnerships at Kent State University's Division of Student Affairs. In her white paper, Dr. Quillen outlines five philosophical components that are inherent to the idea of social constructionism. And as I quote Dr. Quillen, Please listen very closely to see if you recognize any of the components she outlines as being present in one form or another in the statements I read earlier from both Dr. Woodley and Andy Stanley. Dr. Quillen writes this, quote, Social constructionism purports that our beliefs, ways of thinking, and values are not inherently, innately, or objectively given but rather are constructed within the framework of social interactions with others. Social constructionism suggests that A, reality cannot be objectively known, B, reality is constructed in the course of dialogue with others through the use of language contextually formulated and mutually understood, that's Randy Woodley, C, 
reality manifests itself through narrative. That's Randy Woodley. The culture, D rather, the culture in which we live both shapes and is shaped by our realities, Randy Woodley. E, the concept of self and human nature is not a universal one, but is stipulated by the culture in which, in, in which individuals find themselves. In other words, Quillen says, truth is not objective. Woodley. And F, the culture itself often marginalizes its people groups with its creations and categories and so-called truths, Andy Stanley. When you exegete both Woodley's and Stanley's remarks closely, you'll find evidence of all five components of Dr. Quillen's definition of social constructionism. But social constructionism is precisely how wokeness invades and becomes operative in the church as increasing numbers of woke pastors and woke elders and woke deacons and woke worship leaders and woke Sunday school teachers and woke lay people and woke seminary professors and woke parachurch ministry heads who have embraced the demonic lie that Christ's church is merely a social institution are placed into positions of leadership and authority. That's how theological relativism happens. And when the leaders of those churches and institutions embrace wokeness, theological relativism is and should be the expected result. The consequence of which is that the theological and spiritual direction of those institutions ends up being shaped by cowardly men who are unwilling to pay the cost for standing for the truth, if they ever were willing to stand for it at all, for fear of losing the attention, admiration, and acceptance they so desperately crave, not only from the world, but from worldly Christians who are in the church. It's with that unfortunate reality in mind that I wholeheartedly concur with Pastor MacArthur, who in a 2019 interview on the topic, Why Churches Languish Under Cowardly Pastors, said this, quote, There's nothing worse than a pastor who doesn't have any convictions. And when I say convictions, I mean convictions about the things that are laid out explicitly in Scripture. If you will compromise what the Bible says, you're the worst substitute for a pastor. We, of all people, must take what the Word of God says. It must become part of our conviction to such a degree that we will earnestly contend for the faith, that we will fight for the faith, that we will boldly proclaim the faith, even if it means death, unquote. Needless to say, the church is not a social construct, far from it. As the 19th century Scottish Puritan James Bannerman reminds us in his classic book titled The Church of Christ, quote, the church is a divine institution, while all others around it are human. It is a city whose builder and maker is God, while all other societies have been created by man. And the Christian society, thus founded and maintained by God in the midst of a world where all around is human and earthly, must have been established for no trivial or ordinary end. Unquote. But not only does wokeness lead to theological relativism, It also results in ethnic tribalism. Ethnic tribalism, 
On March 9th, 2018, the New York Times published an article titled, A Quiet Exodus, Why Black Worshippers Are Leaving White Evangelical Churches. The article highlights a group of black Christians who formerly were members of churches with predominantly white congregations who were personally grieving the fact that their white pastors were not using their pulpits as woke soapboxes to pontificate about racial, racial reconciliation and social justice. Consequently, those individuals engaged in what the article termed a quiet exodus from those churches and subsequently began to seek out churches where they would feel more valued and appreciated for who they are as black Christians. Unlike those churches to which they formerly belong, that has simply failed to realize how incredibly blessed they were to have had them as members of their congregations. That kind of self-exalting hubris is reflected in this comment by Dr. Shaniqua Walker-Barnes, who in that New York Times article said this, quote, We, that is black worshipers, we were willing to give up our preferred worship style for the chance to really try to live this vision of beloved community with a diverse group of people, but that didn't work, unquote. That comment by Dr. Walker Barnes is an example of what I would describe as a kind of woke semi-Pelagianism. Semi-Pelagianism teaches that the whole of humanity is tainted by sin, but not to the extent that we cannot cooperate with God's grace on our own. In woke semi-Pelagianism, black Christians acknowledge that they are tainted by sin, yes, but not to the degree or extent that white Christians are. Consequently, see, here's where it gets hard for you to hear. Consequently, black Christians only because they're black, are viewed as spiritually superior to their white brothers and sisters. That's because in wokeness, melanin is an indicator of sanctification. The darker your skin color, the more holy you are, which places the onus on those with less melanin to demonstrate and prove their probity and rectitude to those who have less melanin. So when Dr. Walker Barnes bemoans that her ecclesiastical diversity experiment didn't work, what she's actually implying is that her fellow black congregants wanted it to succeed while white congregants didn't. Like most woke Christians, Walker Barnes' problem wasn't that her church wasn't multi-ethnic. Her problem was that her church wasn't multicolored. Do you understand the difference? See, you can be in a room full of people whose melanin is exactly the same shade and have a multi-ethnic group. What Walker Barnes had a problem with was that there were too many white faces in her church. So as a black person, let me take the high road and show you white people how it's done. Man, don't get me started up here. That was 2018 the quiet exodus. Fast forward three years to 2021 and enter onto the scene self-described, quote, religion and race historian, unquote, Dr. Jamar Tisby and his hashtag leave loud initiative. The antithesis of the quiet exodus that I was just speaking about. 
In the notes from the March 8th, 2021 episode of Jamar Tisby's Pass the Mic podcast are found these comments, quote, in recent months, we've seen a surge of black leaders and congregants in predominantly white or multi-ethnic churches and Christian spaces decide that it's time for them to go. We bear witness to the hurt, harm, and frustration that our siblings have experienced. Enough is enough. It's time to hashtag leave loud. To hashtag leave loud is to tell our stories, to name things for what they are, to take back the dignity we've lost while being in institutions that don't value the fullness of the image of God within us and to go, listen to this, and to go where we are celebrated and not just tolerated, unquote. The hashtag Leave Loud movement is an excellent example of ethnic tribalism as woke orthopraxy. But where does the orthodoxy that undergirds that kind of orthopraxy come from? Where does it come from? Well, in this case, it comes from Tisby himself. In response to the question, when is it time to hashtag Leave Loud, Tisby, in a Facebook Watch video dated March 15, 2021, said this, quote, If we, meaning black Christians, if we don't leave, we actually enable the toxic culture that we struggled so mightily against. If there are no consequences for an organization remaining stuck in racial recalcitrance, how will it ever change? I'm not saying that this is a magic bullet, but if people of color leave, if black people leave, maybe that will send a message, unquote. Now, I have to say this at this point. I am constantly amazed at professing Christians who somehow feel entitled to display such prideful arrogance as Tisby's about a literally skin-deep attribute of their personhood with which they had absolutely nothing to do with. Nothing. See, Tisby's Hashtag leave loud is hashtag hermeneutics. See, hashtag hermeneutics won't work. It may get you likes and follows and whatnot on social media. But this is patently unbiblical. It irks me to my core to hear anybody talking about, oh, I'm proud to be black. I'm proud to be Hispanic. I'm proud to be Asian. I'm proud to be white as if you had something to do with it. (laughs) You had absolutely nothing to do with who you are. Zero. And if I look angry, it's because I am. A literally skin-deep attribute, skin-deep, attribute of your personhood, and you want to boast that you're proud of that? Perhaps in Tisby's case, the roles of potter and clay have somehow been reversed. But you see, again, that's what wokeness begets. Wokeness begets a view of the church 
as seen through the lens of ethnic partiality and privilege so that the church is treated as if it were an ecclesiastical arm of the NAACP whose sole purpose is to accommodate the cultural worship preferences and predilections of black Christians who think the church exists to glorify them as opposed to glorifying Christ. And if any of those preferences are not accommodated, then, of course, it can only be because the church is racist. That can be the only reason. So I got a hashtag, leave loud. Speaking of race... Acts 17, 26 provides a one-verse apologetic against the unbiblical and unscientific idea that there is such a thing as human races. Acts 17, 26. You want an apologetic against that idea of race? Acts 17, 26 gives it to you in one verse. That verse in the NESB reads, And he, that is God, made from one man, that one man being Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. The word nation in Acts 17.26 is the Greek noun ethnos, from where we get our English word ethnicity. Ethnicity. Now, a question for you men. How many of you men have ever eaten at a restaurant that specialized in racial cuisine? <laughs> How many of you men have ever had your wife prepare for you a meal that came from a cookbook of racial recipes? The correct answer is none. There's not one person in this sanctuary today who has ever eaten at a restaurant that specialized in racial cuisine, or conversely, who has ever had his wife prepare for him a meal that came from a cookbook of racial recipes. Why do you think that is? You probably have eaten at a restaurant that specialized in what? Ethnic cuisine. You probably have had a meal prepared by your wife that came from a cookbook of ethnic recipes. Now, why is this distinction important? It's important because there is no such thing as biological human race, or for that matter, human races. Consider that against what Scripture teaches in James chapter 3, verse 7, which reads, For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea, is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. You see, before Darwin came along, the word race used to be used to categorize types of things, kinds of things. You had races of plants. You had races of animals. Darwin comes along and just blows that up. But the word race in James 3, 7 is the Greek noun phusis, P-H-Y-S-I-S, which denotes the constitution or form of a person or thing by its nature. By its nature. The word, matter of fact, the words species and race in James 3.7 translate to that same Greek noun, phusis. 
meaning a type or kind of person or thing. It doesn't mean an attribute of that person. In wokeness, race is a mutable, alterable, impermanent social construct. You must understand that. Even the wokest people on the planet, critical race theorists, have acknowledged that fact. I like to say that I have a, in my apologetics, anyone seen the Godfather trilogy of movies? I can't recall if it was Godfather 1 or 2, but young Michael Corleone is saying to someone, my father always taught me to keep my friends close, but my enemies closer. See, in wokeness, you have to read your enemies. You have to read your enemies. See, it may blow your mind to know or to, to realize here that even critical race theorists acknowledge that there is no such thing as human race. And yet they peddle the race idea. Why? Because you're ignorant about it. Even critical race theorists understand this. In the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education, one of today's leading proponents of critical race theory, Dr. Gloria Ladson Billings, a professor in the Department of Educational Policy Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, by the way, The University of Wisconsin-Madison is the birthplace academically of critical race theory. That's where CRT was born. The University of Wisconsin-Madison in the summer of 1989, and Dr. Gloria Lassen-Billings was a part of that cohort. Gloria Lassen-Billings says this in the Handbook of Critical Race Theory and Education, quote, biologists, geneticists, and anthropologists all agree that race is not a scientific reality. Despite what we perceive as phenotypic differences, the scrutiny of a microscope or the sequencing of genes reveals no perceptible differences between what we call races. As members of the same species, see, members of the same fusus, as members of the same species, human beings are biologically quite similar, she says. Thus, While critical race theorists accept the scientific understanding of no race or no genetic difference, see, they're acknowledging this. We also accept the power of a social reality that allows for significant disparities in the life chances of people based on the categorical understanding of race, unquote. See, race is a social category. Even critical race theorists acknowledge that race is a myth. There is no such thing as human races. There is only one human species or kind which is comprised and constituted of various ethnicities. Are you hearing me? As those who are in this world but are not of it, that's John 17, 14. We need to unconditionally reject the socioculture nomenclature of the world and commit ourselves to using biblical terms and categories. The proper meaning biblical term is ethnicity, not race. Stop using race. Another example. 
of how wokeness manifests itself as ethnic tribalism is James Galliard, senior pastor at Word Tabernacle Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Shortly after the beating death of 29-year-old Tyree Nichols, a black man, on January 8, 2023, at the hands of five black Memphis, Tennessee police officers, the video of which was subsequently released to the public, Pastor Galliard made the following remarks to his World Tabernacle congregation. You might want to scoot up close to listen to this one. <laughs> Again, I am quoting verbatim, quoting Pastor Galliard. I did not personally watch the videos because I needed to be able to preach to y'all without being an angry black man. And so I personally was not able to look at them, meaning the videos. What I will tell you is that the answer has always been and always will be God using the African-American church as an agent of moral and cultural change in our community. It has always been that. It will always be that. And so, and when I say the, quote, African-American church, unquote, I'm not talking about a church of only black people. I'm talking about a church that understands that the gospel is justification by faith and social justice. And so whether those are black, brown, or white people that embrace that, when we embrace that and when we give and recognize that we don't live by bread alone, but by our giving we provide a voice, we provide funding to the voice of change. And so when we don't give, particularly to African-American churches, or churches that believe that the gospel is justification by faith and social justice— When I do not give to those environments, I am perpetuating the Tyree Nichols situations of our society. So he just added a sixth sola. (laughs) Those words from Pastor Gilliard are an excellent example of what my good friend Pastor Tom Buck of First Baptist Church in Lindell, Texas, rightly describes as woke hermeneutics. Listen, brothers. When the soteriology to which you profess to subscribe is merely a woke hybrid of sola fide and socialis justitia, or social justice, you don't need a savior. What you need is a social worker. (laughs) You don't need redemption. You need reparations. If that's your soteriology, perhaps... Pastor Gailyard is unfamiliar with what the Apostle Paul unambiguously declares in Galatians 2.16, that a man is not justified by the works of the law, including works of social justice, but by faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed, Paul said, in Christ, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Now, Pastor Galliard will disagree with that. We just heard it from his own mouth. Now, I don't know. I don't know if he would profess to be a believer. But I'm convinced that these words from Dr. Thomas Sowell, from his book, The Quest for Cosmic Justice, are nonetheless true for many woke Christians today. In that book, Sowell said this, quote, Envy 
was once considered to be one of the seven deadly sins before it became one of the most admired virtues under its new name, social justice. You see, the woke hermeneutics of Galliard, Tisby, and other such propagators of black liberation theology is merely the fruit of generations of ethno-ecclesiastical tradition in which churches with predominantly black congregations have come to view themselves precisely as Dr. Albert J. Rabateau describes in his book, Slave Religion, the Invisible Institution of the Antebellum South, namely as, quote, an agency of social control, a source of economic cooperation, an arena for political activity, a sponsor of public education, and a refuge in a hostile white world, unquote. That's how most black churches see themselves today. Where was the gospel in any of what Rabbitoh just said? Nowhere. Nowhere. But notwithstanding the woke hermeneutics of Galliard and Tisby, one of the more egregious examples of ethnic tribalism can be found in the book titled The Divided Mind of the Black Church, Theology, Piety, and Public Witness by Reverend Raphael Warnock. Warnock serves as senior pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. By the way, Atlanta is my hometown. Ebenezer Baptist Church, Warnock succeeded Dr. Martin Luther King, who pastored there previously for decades. Warnock, in my opinion, is the most ardent proponent of black liberation theology in the evangelical church today. And in the aforementioned book, Warnock Warnock writes this, quote, with the encroachment of conservative biblical fundamentalism, now let me pause right there, that phrase conservative biblical fundamentalism can be translated white evangelicalism. With the encroachment of conservative biblical fundamentalism and its authoritative claims to absolute biblical truth. Let me pause again. Are you seeing how absolute truth is attacked woke person after woke person after woke person? Even in the church. It's authoritative claims to absolute biblical truth. The black church needs, now more than ever, a critical theological principle for probing the meaning of black Christian identity. I submit that the concerns of the poor and the most marginalized members of the black community and nothing else must be at the center of that much-needed conversation. Absent that serious and sustained conversation, black theology has been left without a robust public witness within the very institution that gave birth to its prophetic voice, and the black church has been left without the critical tools necessary for probing the theological meaning of its black identity and what that might mean in this moment for a nation in crisis, unquote. Did you catch those tribalist phrases? Black Christian identity, black identity. You can't get more tribalist than that. But that's what the contemporary black evangelical church is about today. Social justice. The gospel is nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be found. Listen, my brothers. There is one church, okay? One. 
There is no black church, no brown church, no white church, no red church, no yellow church. There is only one church. There is only one church of which Christ Jesus himself is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, that is in Christ, not in Tisby, nor Gilliard, nor Warnock, nor Woodley, nor Harrison for that matter, but in Jesus Christ. We are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Ephesians 2. We would all do well to reject the divisiveness of woke hermeneutics and consider what God's word says in such texts as 2 Corinthians 5.16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh, according to the sarx, S-A-R-X in the Greek, which literally means according to the physical substance and characteristics we possess. And that includes your ethnicity. We don't recognize anyone anymore according to those characteristics. I have a name. My name is Daryl Bernard Harrison. He is not that black guy, Daryl Bernard Harrison. I'm not African-American. Don't use labels. If I come to meet you or you introduce yourself to me, do not use labels with me. 1 Corinthians 12, 18, God has placed the members. Hear me, Jamar Tisby. God has placed the members, each one of them in the body, just as he desired. And you got the nerve to pack up and hashtag leave loud because they don't celebrate you. Acts 10, 34, 35. Peter declared that I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, in every ethnos, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome. In, in the Greek, that word welcome is the word acceptable. The man who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Whether viewed through the theological relativism of Dr. Randy Woodley or the ethnic tribalism of James Gellyard, Jamar Tisby, and Raphael Warnock, wokeness is a spiritual cancer which sadly is aggressively metastasizing throughout the evangelical church today. It is a malady which, not unlike cancer, is destroying the church from the inside. You would be shocked to hear some of the stories shared with me and my Just Thinking ministry partner, Virgil Walker, by fellow believers as we travel across the country, speaking at churches and conferences on this subject, some of whom approach us in tears. After having spent literally decades in a local church, they're now finding themselves searching for a new church home because their former church went woke theologically. And as I reflect on those stories, I'm reminded of these words from the book Heaven Taken by Storm by the 17th century Puritan Thomas Watson, who said, quote, Error is an adultery of the mind. Truth is an antidote against error. 
The reason so many, listen to this, the reason so many have been tricked into error is because they either did not know or did not love the truth. Now, which of those two categories do you fall in? Wokeness is a deceptive, destructive, demonic mirage in which salvation is disguised as social justice and redemption is camouflaged as reparations. It is a false gospel whose message is built upon the postmodern quicksand of theological relativism and ethnic tribalism. In his sermon titled, The Hallmarks of God's True Church, Pastor MacArthur said this, quote, please listen, brothers, please listen closely. Pastor MacArthur said the worst battles the church fights are not outside, but inside. Because you have people defecting to Satan's agenda. It's foundational to the church then to understand that there is a very, very subtle conflict going on all the time. And it isn't that you want to be unloving. It isn't that you want to be a fighter all the time, but it is for the sake and the safety and protection of the church that you have to know what's coming. And you have to fight the weapon. You have to fight with the weapon of the truth, unquote. MacArthur said you have to know what's coming. The Apostle Paul urged the believers in Ephesus to no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. This message is titled The Spiritual Deception of Wokeness. The word scheming in Ephesians 4.14 is the Greek Greek noun methodeia, Methodia, which denotes erroneous methods, tactics, and strategies deliberately designed to lead others astray. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, that we are not to be ignorant of Satan's schemes. Now consider that apostolic injunction in light of what the 17th century Puritan Thomas Brooks says in his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. In that book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, Thomas Brooks says that the first device that Satan uses against believers in Christ and against his church is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the bait and hide the hook. That is precisely what wokeness in all its spiritual deceptiveness does. It presents the bait of unity, justice, and equity while hiding the hook of division, partiality, hatred, envy, jealousy, and covetousness. As my friend John Benzinger, who pastors at Redeemer Bible Church in Gilbert, Arizona, writes in his book, Stand, Christianity versus Social Justice, quote, the social justice movement is not Christianity. The message, the methods, the mission, the desired outcomes are not Christian. It is an anti-Christian philosophy disguised as truth and love that has captured much of the visible church. 
like a virus. It is a foreign antibody injected into the body of Christ. The social justice movement is poisoning the church, spreading strife and attacking the very heart of the gospel, unquote. Now, let me ask you, brothers, when wokeness comes for your church, and notice I didn't say if, I said when. When wokeness comes for your church, what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? Are you going to stand firm on the sufficiency and authority of Scripture? Or are you going to cave and bend the knee to the woke mob a mob which very likely will arise from inside your own congregation. What are you going to do? You're going to fold up for fear that you'll lose some of your members to a quiet exodus or some leave loud movement? Or perhaps worse, they'll attempt to force you out of your church altogether because you refuse to homiletically morph into Martin Luther King Jr. on Sunday mornings. Now, as I close, my call to action to you and to me, as we toil together in the power of the Holy Spirit too, as the Apostle Paul exhorts us in 2 Corinthians 10, 5, destroy speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. My call to action to you is simply this. Keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the main thing the main thing. I say that in light of what Jesus said to his disciples in Mark chapter 1, verse 38. He said, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that, preaching the gospel is what I came for, Jesus said. Jesus kept the main thing the main thing. J.C. Ryle put it this way in his expository thoughts on the Gospel of John, and with his words, I will close. Quote, Do we do any work for God? Do we try, however feebly, to set forward his cause on earth, to check that which is evil, to promote that which is good? If we do, let us never be ashamed of doing it with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. The world may mock and sneer and call us enthusiasts, but let us work on unmoved. Whatever men say and think, we are walking in the steps of our Lord Jesus. Unquote. I echo that exhortation to you from J.C. Rowell. Let us work on unmoved. And if I may be so bold, let us not only work on unmoved, but let us also work on unwoke. May our great God, whose gospel you are privileged to preach by virtue of his unmerited grace and mercy, continue to equip and strengthen you to be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Thank you very much.